Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. The <laughs> one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump, adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13, based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source. Just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. How are you doing? You feeling all right? I feel good. I feel good. Do you feel pretty? Oh, so pretty. <laughs> How about witty and wise? How did you know? <laughs> Man. Uh, you just seems like you've had a night of it. And that maybe you're, uh, you're just on fire. Uh, you're firing on, uh, as they say, all cylinders. It's like you're reading my thoughts. <laughs> pretty, witty, <laughs> and wise. Yes, uh, all of those things. <laughs> uh, do you mind? I just uh, just sort of jumped into it. We're just sort of doing it. And by the way, I, I pity any boy who isn't me. <laughs> We are the next reel, and I'm Pete Wright, and that's Andy Nelson. Hi, Andy. Say hi to the people. Hi, people. And we spoil movies. Tonight's movie that we're going to spoil is 1985's Pale Rider. Uh, Clint Eastwood directing himself again. Yes. And uh, we're very excited to do this. This is our continuing our Richard Dysart series, and uh, we get to talk about it. Dysart taking a little bit of, of more of a role, I think, uh, which we will talk about shortly. Absolutely. Until then, you should find us at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of uh, the goodly Sarmento at the, at the, uh, on the blog there. You can catch up with all of our past episodes, browse by series, check out the film board. And, of course, from there, you can connect to all of our various uh, fine social platforms and join the conversation with us about movies. And they can soon? Can they yet? Am I... Speaking out of turn, if I say that soon they will be able to have a direct link to see all the films we're going to be talking about in 2014? Yeah, soon. <laughs> so maybe I'm speaking a little soon? Well, it's been a busy week, Andy. <laughs> but they can at least go to our blog posting about it. <laughs> you can, and uh, that'll take you over to Letterboxd, and on our Letterboxd account we have uh, we have all of our, our films, and you can connect to those and and if you haven't friended us over there, you can uh, keep up with all of our episodes straight on Letterboxd, which is cool. Um, so, uh, with that, my favorite part of the show, how did Andy versus the people go this week? <laughs> you know, our, our Instagram challenge is always <laughs> is always fun. And I did I did good this week. I you know, I oh, did, did you do good? I made it three <laughs> pictures the last two weeks. I, you know, it's, it's well, it's been it's been tricky, but uh, let no bones about it. You are you're coming back, is what you're saying. You you've had a bit of a slump, and you're ready for a comeback. I work. Andy on Nelson, that comeback. the comeback kid. Yes, I think what I have to learn is. 
planning the pictures very, uh, very meticulously. So they're really abstract early in the week and only get clear by the last couple. Um, because apparently the third image that I posted with the train with a nice big star on the front is pretty obvious <laughs> from 310 to Yuma because uh, Cameron Ryan nailed it. Uh, from that image, <laughs> she's uh, you know she's quickly uh, between uh, her and uh, Steam Robot. They're quite the competitors. So. They, they <laughs> so are work, active. <laughs> I've got to work hard to really uh, stump them. I'm I'm t you know you have some of these. Uh, okay, uh, Die Hard I had really right away. The Firm I had right away. Hope and Glory I I had no memory of that. But three ten to Yuma. It's tough to it. It's tough to. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, like that was a that's a tough one to to. Be, but I, I mean, come on, a picture of a caboose by the mountains. Yeah, how are you gonna know? I'm just saying. <laughs> I didn't. I actually didn't. I didn't know it from the caboose on the mountains. I'm not even sure I saw that one. Yeah. Was that the first one you did? Or the that was the first one. The first okay. one. The second this, one I did was a hand holding holding like, a rifle. Pocket, you know what? Rifle, yeah. Do you know what I thought? <laughs> you know what I thought that was? Didn't you? Did you already do the coward Robert Ford? I didn't. Uh, see, that's what I thought that one was. Mm. But I did get it on the train too. I got yeah. I, that was. I guess it's an obvious train. It's I, an obvious train. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's the titular train. It's the three ten to. It Yuma. is the three ten to Yuma station. So. <laughs> It, it does need to be kind of an important train. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, but congratulations to Cameron. She is entered uh, into uh, our Pony Prize contest. I'm not kidding. This Instagram feed, the next real Instagram feed is fantastic. <laughs> it is so fantastic. Uh, I, You know what, people? If you are not following the Instagram feed, you must do this. Uh, and get over there. The Instagram.com. Don't do, if you do nothing else. Follow this one because it's it's like uh, <laughs> it's like you can see the whole movie in in seven shots. And there are some strange images that pop up from time to time. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a odd image. <laughs> yeah, I think there were some like right. At, what did you do? The seventh seal. That one was crazy. Uh, there's yeah, there's been some tricky ones. There have been. <laughs> Old boy had some pretty. Old boy was so yeah. creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Well, I look forward to. Do, are you already ready for this week? Do you know what's going? I, on? I'm ready. I got. I got everything ready to go. Love it. Mm -hmm. So that's the pony prize. Uh, and uh, let's see. Do we also do we have anything else to tell the people? I think we've told them. Everything there is. We to told tell. them everything there is. Then let's talk trailers. I have to say, I'm I'm really excited about the trailer that I'm going to talk about. I'm really nervous about <laughs> the film itself. I don't know if it's a film that I uh, should be excited about <laughs> uh, because it's one of those where the trailer just like has so much uh, going for it, and I just wonder if it's going to turn into something that. <laughs> That just can't live up to what the trailer promises. It's called Knights of Bad Astom. And it basically, it's a group of people who, it's, what is they called? The, uh, um, I can't remember the, those groups, but basically they dress up like, uh, the Society characters. for Creative Anachronism. Yes, that's the one. Yes. That's why I couldn't remember it because it's such a creative 
Creative. The SCA. Uh, yeah. Didn't you have like the life-size chessboard at your? <laughs> Didn't you see that? I missed that. I missed that. <laughs> but <laughs> but it is basically a a movie that follows a group of these people as they play in their games and it just participate in all sorts of wonderful nonsense. And uh, <laughs> one of the characters, played by Steve Zahn, accidentally, as he's moving up in his, uh, you know, he's like the wizard character, and he's moving up to the next level, and so he gets this this special wizard book, <laughs> and he he just randomly picks a page and reads a spell and accidentally conjures up a demon from hell, a succubus, I believe, <laughs> as he says in the trailer. So he and all of his friends, including Peter Dinklage, Summer Glau, uh, Ryan Quantin, uh, they all have to work to uh, destroy the succubus before she destroys all of them. Okay, uh, so <laughs> this movie <laughs> looks so good. Okay, first of all, uh, reasons I can't wait to see this movie. One, Summer Glau. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, Peter Dinklage, who spends his most of his time right now in a show uh, <laughs> being this exactly this character in this alternate period universe right. pretending to be this guy in this alternate period universe in a spoof it's like he's spoofing himself and he takes it so seriously epic <laughs> three steve zahn is exactly what i would imagine andy nelson would be like conjuring a succubus <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't watch this trailer enough. <laughs> but don't don't you have that fear that it's going to turn into like my name is Bruce, that one where that you know the the townspeople bring Bruce Campbell into the Bruce Campbell playing Bruce Campbell. Yes. Uh, to uh, because he's so great in in the Evil Dead movies and stuff, but they accidentally resurrect this monster in their town, and then the Bruce Campbell has to play kind of. Yeah. His movie character Bruce Campbell in order to stop this thing. I mean, it's it a little too meta, meta happy. It is really meta yeah. happy. Too much. And I hope that it doesn't go that route because it looks so good. It looks so good. <laughs> I can't take it. Oh, very much oh, looking. Man, Knights of Badassdom. <laughs> wow. And that's actually getting a uh, a very limited release in this country. In fact, I think it's one of those releases where you kind of have to be uh, – what is that website? It's one of those websites where you can go to and you can, like, get people to to kind of vote for it to come play in your area. And so um, that is how people are getting it. Like, it's going to be screening here – in the Phoenix area a couple times, I think in the next couple weeks, because enough people voted to get it here. And so uh, it's going to be playing in early February down here in Phoenix. It's uh, I'm trying to find the name of that website that uh, you can get it from. Tug, T-U-G-G dot com. Hmm. Available on demand and digital February 11th, coming yes. right up. And then if you look at Tug, T-U-G-G dot com, you can see if you can get it to come play in your area. There you go. Uh, that's that's so good. I'm so excited for this movie. I'm, you know what? I'm going to buy it on iTunes. I don't even care. I'm not going to go. I just want to contribute to people making these kinds of movies. Yeah. I love the awesome. map. Like if you go to the <laughs> Knights of Badassdom-Movie.com, 
<laughs> they have the the background after you watch the trailers, like the the map, the forest of lost souls, the dead meadows <laughs> of Bodom, the plains <laughs> of Evermore. <laughs> That's a great moment of the trailer. Like, These are the plains of Evermore. It pulls back and people are setting their pop-up tents up. <laughs> it is about to get medieval up in here. Thy, thy wait is over. This could be something that turns into a guilty pleasure for somebody. It could. It may already be. <laughs> I haven't even seen it yet. I already feel so guilty. <laughs> My trailer is different. Uh, my trailer comes out right around the same time. A couple of days later, on February 14th, we are introduced to Akiva Goldsman, starring Colin Farrell, Jessica Brown Findlay, Russell Crowe, with Winter's Tale. This looks like an ambitious film. <laughs> Do you know what? Would you, uh, you watch the trailer, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you watch the trailer, and there's the trailer looks like two movies. Yeah. You get that feeling? Like there's the uh, there's the back-in-time part, and then there's the future part, and then they all get mixed up together. It's like two movies yeah. that all these people are in. It looks really... Uh, I mean, watching the trailer, it struck me as, wow, this is a story that's really going to do a lot, and I hope that they know how to pull it off. <laughs> uh, truly. A burglar falls in love for an heiress as she dies in his arms. When he learns that he has the gift of reincarnation, he sets out to save her. And, of course, played by Colin Farrell, I cannot stop thinking about Highlander with that accent. Mm. Plus, it's a reincarnation thing. It's like living for hundreds of years and... And it you seems know, like I think at one point they actually say there can be only one. <laughs> well, and it seems like, you know, he's kind of this pawn character and yeah. Russell Crowe seems to be more of an all-knowing bad guy character who knows about these people who kind of live across time. And uh it seems like the who's the other opposite of Russell Crowe? Was it William Hurt? I can't remember. Yes, William Hurt. So I'm very curious to see how all this plays out. It's got an interesting cast like Jennifer Connelly is in it, Will Smith yeah, in kind of weird places. Like, they sneak yeah. up. Graham Greene, uh, Lucy Griffiths, Kevin Corrigan, William Hurt, Kevin Durand, uh, even, Russell even Crowe. Even Eva Marie Saint is in Eva it. Eva Marie Saint, yes. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, it, it's got a long, long cast list, and they are... Uh, so I don't know how they fit all these people in this in this film. This is a this is looks really big. I sort of can't believe we haven't talked about it. I'm glad that we're talking about it now because it really is just coming out in a couple of weeks. So uh get ready to see this one. It looks like it'll be an ambitious theater going experience. Yeah, just in time for Valentine's Day. Yeah. I hope they find each other. Kind of spoil mm. it by saying that she dies in the <laughs> in the blurb. Well he's gonna come find her. We hope <laughs> who knows is this the, okay so Akiva Gold, a Goldman this is his directorial feature directorial debut yes he's, he's mostly known as a, a lot. as a writer yeah well in his screenwriting I mean he's won yeah. what did he win his Oscar for was it uh, Beautiful Mind is that what he won 
Uh, yep. Well, no, it wasn't iRobot, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> he did, uh, yeah, he's written, he's got 15 writing credits, he's got 22 producer credits, a lot of production credits. He was he was a pr- producer for the entire run of Fringe, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, the, uh, all the paranormal movies that hit Jonah Hex. Not sure if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's uh, he's he's been producing and writing a lot, but yeah, this is his uh, his first feature film, uh, as you say, mm-hmm. debut. Interesting. Debut. Yeah, this will be interesting. So I'm very curious about this film. I'm looking forward to seeing it, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Absolutely, February fourteenth. And with that, shall we? Let's do it. Warner Brothers will be proud to bring you the next great American Western. Clint Eastwood, Pale Rider. They came out of the mountains to ravage and rape a small mining village. Suddenly, a stranger appeared. And hell followed with him. Some called him Preacher. Others called him Gunfighter. Clint Eastwood, Pale Rider. This is Clint Eastwood. Do you, do you know? Do you know how many? Without looking, can you tell me how many films Clint Eastwood in which Clint Eastwood has directed himself? Can you tell me that? Um. Do you know right now? Five, four, three, two, go. No, twelve. Wow. Really? I just threw that out there. Really? Is it twelve? No. Oh. <laughs> no, and let me tell you this. 20, in in 20. 1985, in 1985, when Pale Rider came out, Pale Rider was his 10th in 1985. Wow. That was the 10th time he had directed himself. Does that change your tune at all? Yes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> How about uh, 30? Okay, now you're just messing with me. <laughs> no, it's actually 22. 22 wow. films from 1971 to 2008. He started playing Misty for me was his first. Uh, and then Gran Torino. Actually, yeah, Gran Torino was his most recent because he didn't do, uh, he didn't direct the baseball one, right? No, he just started he just that started one. one. Yeah. Uh, so, man, this guy knows how to direct himself. That's what I'm thinking when I'm watching Pale Rider. He... He he does, especially in westerns. I yeah. think there's something about the the way that he understands how to play a a, a western cow, character, how to um, move as that western character, how to frame the shots of himself as a western character. That and in a way, I think has really defined what we all think of as kind of that lone cowboy. And I think we'd all agree, also in Firefox. <laughs> and and Firefox <laughs> and maybe Honky Tonk. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. I hated yeah. Firefox. That was a terrible movie. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, talk about a guy who has who defined an era of Western films. Um, you know, this was uh, he. This is, you know, in all the sort of similarities that that get sort of conjured up as you as you think about. Um, you know, westerns of this period, uh, and and he even you know they're similar to his own films in some cases. Um, this uh, this film is it, it plays the icon 
uh, superbly. Yeah. And and ironically, you don't see a lot of Clint Eastwood in this movie. I mean, it's it's kind of deceiving that it's a Clint Eastwood film, uh, and and yet he, um, you know, there's less of him than I would have expected. Let's just say that. Yeah, and. Uh... Interesting the way that that comes to play uh, in the context of the story. Why talk he about, is kind of talk about the story a little bit because there's yeah talk about talk about this. Uh, this is the uh, a um, uh, the Western superhero origin story, Western ghost <laughs> story. How how dare it's, how do you uh, talk about the story? Give, give give the people a little review. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a it's a small group of miners that are basically getting bullied by the big corporate miner who is in the town nearby, who essentially runs and owns the town nearby, who uses a method, kind of a newfangled method of mining called hydraulic mining, where they basically blast the sides of the uh, the hills with, uh, with high-pressure water to just basically erode everything, and then that's how they pan for gold. Uh, in a very massive scale. I mean, it's it's like raping the land to to get the gold out of it. Well, that that may be a little extreme. Yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is the this is the uh, feature uh, cinema debut of hydraulic fracturing. <laughs> they were fracking. They were fracking in 1985. Uh, uh, projecting back to uh, I don't know 1885. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. The um and. And uh, a little girl's dog gets killed in this raid on their mining town. And she says a prayer, hoping that someone will come save them. And in rides this pale rider. And uh, a very mysterious figure who uh, helps these people out, helps bring them together. And, you know, long story short, kind of uh, brings an end to the, the problem of this uh, this corporate miner and is able to help these town people succeed. In the process, though, it's there's a, a wrong that he writes when this uh, corporate miner brings in this this marshal, who essentially is no more than just kind of a, a, a hired assassin who brings his own men, his six men. So it's like these seven uh, figures who come in, and it turns out that there is some history between the Stockburn, the head of this group, and... Uh, preacher, the pale writer, and uh, that all gets resolved nicely. But that's that's essentially kind of what the story is. It's kind of this Western tale of of righting the wrong that this corporate mining company is doing on this little town. All right. So, uh, what do you what stands out for you uh, when you watch this film? Uh, as it, um, you know, I kept thinking to myself as I'm watching it, this film does a, a good job for me of of testing my emotional connection to these characters, right? Uh, it, it seems like I am on a, uh, a bit of a roller coaster in terms of who I, you know, who I, I want to succeed from scene to scene. And I surprised <laughs> myself. Interesting. I, I surprised myself and I think he did a, a very good job. How does that, how does this movie play out for you after, um, I, I should ask you, when's the last time you watched it? Uh, I actually watched it, uh, not, too long ago i'd say maybe uh six months ago oh recently it's been years years for me yeah before that it had been for me as well um but uh, i wanted to just kind of refresh my memory uh, on some of my clint eastwood westerns and so gave it a rewatch um uh, this film has always been 
an interesting one for me that I've always really enjoyed. I've never really gotten too involved with until I think Stockburn shows up. And that's when it, it, I, I really start getting much more invested in the story and everything that's going on. I think some of that is that maybe I've foolishly always missed the fact that he's a ghost. <laughs> I mean, which, yeah. you know, I don't, it's not ever really spelled out, but it, I, I always have found it very kind of this strange religious moment when, when uh, the young girl. Uh, Megan is saying this prayer. Uh, she's played by uh, Sidney Penny, and she's saying this prayer. And uh, as she's praying, we cut to the mountains, and we cut to the, the snowy mountains, uh, and we see him kind of ride out. And then later, when she's talking with her mother, and she's a very you know, Bible um, uh, knowledgeable girl. She really kind of is always reading the Bible and looking at it and she's reading a passage from revelations i believe about the pale rider and uh she and as she's reading that um in rides the uh, i think the quote is when the lamb opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature say come i looked and there before me was a pale horse and on it was a rider and his name was death and hell followed behind him and as she's saying that he kind of rides up which <clears throat> kind of alludes to the fact that this man, there's something more to him and a greater reason as to why he's here. Now, I, I don't know. I guess I just never kind of twisted it in my head to looking at it as, from the supernatural perspective that this man actually was a ghost and he's here to kind of avenge his death. But, I mean, that's when you look at it that way, it's like, oh, it's completely obvious. I should have always seen it that way. Yeah, I, and, I think so, too. I was... Uh... I think I was thrown by that as well, because that didn't that that doesn't that's not a a, a sequence. I I think it, and it's it's a pivotal sequence, but uh, it's not a it it's not a sequence. I'm I'm speaking of when she's reading the the Bible. It's a pivotal yeah. sequence, obviously in the the overall dramatic arc of the film, but it's not one that sticks with me. Well, and I think part of that is because it's 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 read in kind of a dramatic way where. A, bad stuff has been happening and all this stuff and and okay yes he's sitting on a pale horse and you know it it kind of fits that it just you know i guess i always looked at it as there's there's foreboding words that kind of allude to the fact that this character his name is death okay he's a cowboy he's here to kind of kill the bad guys right so. right. right i've never kind of twisted and looked at it in that in the other more supernatural way and it's definitely an interesting thing to look at. And oddly enough, as I was reading up on this, people are talking about how High Plains Drifter is the same thing, about a ghost that comes and avenges his death. And yeah. I'm like, I don't remember him being dead in that one either. <laughs> how have I missed all this? And then and then here I am going, oh, and then I watch The Natural, and I'm like, oh, he's clearly dead. What's going on? Why doesn't anyone else get it? I'm, I'm just looking at all these movies wrong, I guess. <laughs> That's fantastic. I yeah, and that was the one I was I was talking about the similarities to, to other films, and and I um, I think it's so interesting, and I, I'm I'm almost sure it's because um, uh, when I first saw this film, I, I was not of an age to interpret it that way. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I, I was too cynical. Uh, maybe the first time I saw it, I just didn't see it. It was just it was right in front of me, and I I just didn't see it. Uh, 
even in the final shootout sequence, right? You 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 talk about you know when Stockburn shows up, so the the hired gun and his henchmen, uh, his six, uh, uh, you know, uh, duster deputies. duster clad deputies uh, show up, and they uh, brutally uh, you know assassinate one of the town's members. Yeah, right. Uh, and then there's this there's this sequence where uh, you know it's it's the pale rider up against or the preacher up against the the deputies and and Stockburn, and uh, at this point in the film we've already seen uh, that there is acknowledgement. Stockburn acknowledges that he knows who this guy is, and the preacher acknowledges that he knows who Stockburn is, even though they have not directly confronted one another. And so this is the big sequence, and. The, the well, sequence. and I think I, I think just to just to be fair, I think yeah. Stockburn suspects it. I don't think he knows it because I don't think he wants to believe it. Yeah, and I think that's probably true. But see, uh, I, I think the way I characterize that is exactly how I saw it the first time. Right? It was that. Yeah. Like, like of course, he acknowledged it. They must have had a run in in the past, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and so then there's this little cat and mouse thing, right, going on where the preacher is just gunning down these guys. He surprises them. First he's, you know, around a corner. Then he's in a box. Then he's in the water. Then he's, you know, like right. there. It, it's just full of these, you know, this very quick kind of one-off as he gets rid of all the six deputies. And then there is the, the standoff, right, the stare down. Mm-hmm. And the preacher comes out and he picks up his hat, which has been left in the middle of the street, and instead of doing a draw, the what you know what we'd normally expect as a draw in this sort of a film, they stare at each other, and he walks. Uh, he walks straight up and stares Stockburn in the eye. Right. Mm. I. I still don't think I, I. I mean, I got it. They have this exchange where Stockburn says, "You, you, you," and obviously he's surprised. Mm-hmm. But I still, at that point, didn't get it that he was surprised because he was looking at a ghost. Right. Is that crazy? Well, I think it's because of Eastwood's directing style. I don't think he's the sort who's going to, like, put kind of a glow around the character or anything no. like that. I mean, I, that that clearly just is not his style. He has a much more uh, refined hand when it comes to that sort of stuff. I think he does, too. And, and that's one of the things I love so much about this sequence, though. And that's yeah. that's actually my the, the sort of the punchline to my experience. I feel like it's nuts in hindsight that I didn't get it until I actually, you know, I, I had to watch really closely. Uh, but what I like so much about it is that he doesn't, treat this in any sort of a handy heavy-handed fashion i mean there are parts of this film that i find just sort of vaudevillian you know the the initial uh hickory beating you know where he takes on the uh mm-hmm. the la hood thugs in the street protecting uh hull uh in the in the opening sequence he beats down these you know these three guys uh with a or three four guys with a uh you know like an axe handle right um, and you know he does it with these with great flourish and it's cut in such a way that would lead you to believe that Clint Eastwood is is probably not that adept with uh being all flourishy with a hickory stick and so you know they cut these little sequences together mostly of just him beating this guy up these guys up uh and i find those you know the the film moves in and out of that sort of style of editing right of of kind of visual storytelling this kind of campy style yeah. um it, and then it goes into this more sort of sober 
uh, approach that we see in the end of the film, which I like so much. And I feel like that gives this film visually much more weight uh, than I got uh, than I than I get from some of the sequences earlier on. Yeah, it it is interesting. The I think there's uh, just going back to that last moment real quick. I, I, it's always it always has struck me that why does Stockburn wait so long to pull his gun? And I and I think looking in retrospect, when you know that Eastwood is a ghost and he's coming to kill him. Um, it's not until Stockburn sees the whites of his eyes when 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 uh, preacher lifts his hat a little bit and you can kind of see the whites of his eyes yeah. that Stockburn really connects and and he tries to pull his gun out but it's almost like he's so paralyzed that he can't get his gun out it's like he's kind of paralyzed with fear in a way right and interesting I when earlier in the film when preacher first arrives and and Hull and and uh, his, uh, you know, his, I guess it's not really a fiance, but his, his girlfriend and her daughter are uh, taking care of him. He's changing his clothes and he takes his shirt off and you see these scars on his back from bullet holes. And they're in a pattern very much similar to the pattern that when he kills Stockburn at the end, it's essentially the same pattern. Plus, then he also uh, hits him right between the eyes, much the way that Stockburn finished off uh, Spider right. earlier in the in the film. And so it, it is very interesting the way all of that plays out, but all done in a way where it really kind of respects the audience and nothing hits you over the head with obviousness, you know? Nothing is spelled out, even the history between Preacher and Stockburn, and or or just any history of preacher period like where did this guy come from why is he a preacher why, how is he also this this great gunman etc cetera, etc cetera. there's all these questions that are raised but they're never really answered it's left very vague and unlike even something like high plains drifter where we get a lot of the flashbacks as the film comes to its conclusion we see kind of how he was strung up and all of that sort of stuff we don't get that here. We don't get any of those flashbacks. So it's left very much kind of in our heads and we kind of take with it what we will and, you know, make something out of it that, that, it, you know, everyone has their own story in their head from it, I guess. And well, I really like the way that he builds the story that way. Well, you think about it this way. Uh, and, and I think that comparison is, is apt. If you had taken out all of the flashbacks of High Plains Drifter, mm -hmm. uh, would the story have stood up for you? Do you know what I'm saying? And and I'm asking that with the, as a baited comparison because I think it's one of the things I like so much about this film that if you took out all of the suspicion that you have that he's a ghost, that this is a standoff between the living and the dead, the movie still stands up. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I I think that's why you know so what do you, I do you see my comparison with High Plains Drifter like I don't think the movie would it wouldn't be the same film it, it would not like we need more of that backstory uh, in in High Plains in Drifter. High Plains Drifter and yeah we don't have that I guess there's not the illusions the kind of the biblical illusions and the things that kind of give us that sense that oh, okay this guy's dead I mean I don't think if you cut out the like the biblical illusions. Uh, Earlier in in Pale Rider, I don't think it would have been obvious at all. Well, clearly it wasn't obvious for me, but I don't right. think you would have been able to ever deduce that this guy was a ghost. Well, that's what makes this such an interesting movie to digest. 
yeah, right? Absolutely. That that we could see this movie and really enjoy it as a as a western uh, as a re- western revenge fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as you know, because the roving drifter is such an iconic character um, in you know storytelling that that that's enough if you tell it in in a, a visual enough fashion, right? I mean that that it's enough for me to know that there is a guy out there in the plains where it, in which I, if I'm in trouble. There's a chance I'll be rescued, and I won't ever get to know why, but I feel better and safer knowing that that there are these people out there, these vigilantes out there that are that are protecting the good of the innocent, right? Mm. And that's enough of a story for me. And in this case, adding the supernatural element, um, you know, that gives you something to jaw on. Does it make it a better story or a worse story or more interesting story? Uh, for me, it makes it more interesting. It makes it more interesting because I see another layer of it that I didn't see, you know, 15 years ago the first time I saw this film. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I almost want to just go watch it again and look at it from that perspective and go, okay, really, I, I like the way that they develop all of that over the course of this film and the way that he interacts with people and the way that he... Uh, appears and reappears uh, or, or disappears and in in ways to kind of bring people together and uh, help this group find a way to basically become kind of a cohesive team that can work together to oppose this, uh, uh, you know, LaHood and his thugs. So let's talk a little bit about LaHood. Uh, ah, yes. Our man... Our man Dysart. Fantastic. Yeah. He's really, he can be just an evil bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Boy. He's he's good. He really is. He is good. I didn't, I I actually, I mean, we've talked about other movies of his. We've obviously seen other movies of his. And uh, I still, with that longhorn mustache, I actually had to, like, I didn't, I had to look it up. I was like, wait, really? This is Richard Dysart? Really? <laughs> what I think is so interesting about the way he plays this, and, and you know, we, we have to remember that this was 1985. It's, it's since this film, uh, this, is, this is one of the sort of genetic precursors of many of the performances of uh, the corporate um, villain. Right. Yeah. And right. and to see him play this role as, uh, you know, the corporate villain. And again, he's like Clint Eastwood. Like we don't get a lot of him on screen. Right. Right. Much of this is the story of Hull and Thugs and the townspeople. But when we do see him, we see this really interesting sort of a roller coaster of an arc. First, he comes in and he's the sophisticated, you know, he gets off the train. He's the sophisticated business owner. And then we see that he's the way he orders his son uh, uh, played by the. Uh, young Chris Penn uh, and and other thugs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as he orders them around on how to, you know, how they need to take care of these things. They need we we can tell that there is a thuggish behavior, and he wants to use force to to uh, get these uh, get these people out of their uh, off their land so that he can develop it uh, as a mining uh, as a mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he when he first meets with the preacher when he invites the the preacher into his office we see him come unhinged over the writ of law uh, right and his voice gets all high and he just goes crazy right yeah. and and uh the best line for me of his when he stops he recovers his composure and he says i've negotiated i've tried to talk it up and i've just come up short 
Like yep. you can, when he comes to terms with the fact that he is, he's going to use violence again, and he's going to do it with a smile on his face. Yep. I thought he was. Cool. He's evil. He's, he's evil. evil. And I think one of my favorite moments with him is when Stockburn and his men are confronting Spider, who has found a huge nugget of gold. I mean, it's just ridiculously large. I mean, the size of somebody's head large. Right. Um, he is gone to town. He's drunk as a skunk. And he basically goes in the street to, you know, basically yell at LaHood and just tell him, you know, I, I'm, I can be great too and all that sort of stuff. Stockburn and his men come out and have this, I mean, it's a really uh, intense and painful scene as they, you know, kind of do that whole dance thing and they shoot the ground and make, make Spider kind of jump around. And then Spider is so mad, he pulls his gun and and is ready to just kind of lay it into these guys. And they just go to town on him and fill him with lead. I mean, literally, it's it's almost like it doesn't stop to the point where every bullet that they have is in his body, basically. And there's a shot of uh, LaHood, Richard Dysart, standing inside in the shadows. And you just get this, like, sliver of light on the side of his face as he's looking down and... We know from Spider saying that he knew Coy LaHood, Richard Dysart's character, from long ago when they were young men. And, you know, so there's this history between these two characters. And LaHood just stands there in the shadows, letting these guys gun down this guy that he knew from his youth. Doesn't do anything about it. It's, it's just business to him. And it's, it, it just is a, a haunting image of this character uh, using these evil people to do his evil deeds. Oh, that's true. That's a great, great image that and a great a moment. Wonderful visual. And it is punctuated by uh, a really disappointing image when he finally gets shot and is killed. Uh-huh. And he doesn't fall all the way out the window. <laughs> I don't know. It just that, makes there's... me mad, man. Just fall out the window. Come on. I, to me, there's something worse about not falling out the window. <laughs> I just all I can think about is giant shards of glass embedded embedded in, your belly. in his gut. Yeah. <laughs> Ow. No thanks. No thanks. It's fantastic. Uh, he uh, yeah he runs a he runs a tight ship in this little town that summarily undoes itself. Yeah. Uh, who else do you want to talk about? We should we should talk about well we should definitely talk about Michael Moriarty. Yeah, he's you know he's an interesting character that I think works really well in the context of this film. Even if I don't always uh, you know kind of connect with his character, I know, there's something interesting about him as as a presence that I, I just don't always connect with sometimes. But I, there's something about him in this film where he feels like he is of this era. Let me tell you what's really important about. Uh, Michael Moriarty is uh, a return to Salem's lot. <laughs> Am I right? Oh man, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he who was, was he in that? He was the the anthropologist. He was the main guy who came back to Salem's lot with his son to discover that Salem's lot was now a vampire Disneyland. Right. Right. And he was the his whole the whole story was about how he's how amoral he is. And so how he won't he won't get in, involved with anything that he sees. And so there's like, this, you know, horrible atrocities going on around him and he won't 
he won't mess with. And that's how I actually remembered Michael Moriarty, not uh, his uh, otherwise uh, robust catalog of uh, film and, and television roles, but Return to Sandals. When I saw him in this movie, I was surprised. Because I still I thought that's the guy from a return to Salem's lot he's he's been in a lot of horror movies that does seem to be kind of a direction he's done and a lot of TV stuff yeah. uh, but I mean looking through his horror stuff I mean a lot of stuff from my childhood that I saw I don't know if it uh, speaks highly or not but the stuff troll <laughs> aside from return to Salem's lot. Um, you know, just uh, those are things that I remember straight out of my youth that uh, Q, he was in Q, the uh, the giant uh, Quetzalcoatl yep, yep. <laughs> in New York, in uh, New York City movie. Uh, you know, so he's one of those guys that definitely has that face and has been in um, lots of stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I do like him. I just there's something about him in this. And maybe it's just kind of the way he smiles sometimes. I feel like, you know, he's not quite in it or something i don't know well we're definitely i i i totally agree with you i there was a period i just have to get this out where he came unhinged uh and tried to sue uh attorney general janet reno mm. do you remember this did you hear about I, this i i don't remember this she at all. said that that law and order he was on law and order at the time and and uh, that it was offensively violent and so he said he was going to sue her uh, and claimed that she wanted to censor shows uh, uh, like, and this is wow. this is Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, like Law & Order, but also fair quotes such as Murder, She Wrote. He uh, accused Law & Order executive Dick, Dick Wolf of not taking his concerns uh, seriously and that the executives caved into Reno's demands and he was uh, he was actually kicked off the show. Wow. Yeah, it just, it just sort of came unhinged. And that, I think... Uh, is uh, describes kind of my expectation of him after seeing him in this role. And not that those two things are connected, but in this role, what he does so well is he plays a, a simple and passionate character. Yeah. Right? He is a simple person, and he is obsessively passionate about what he is doing. Right. And and he he does it in his own way. I think that you know one of the things I like uh, one of the the sequences I like so much in this movie is the the campfire sequence. You know when they're when the the twenty guys the twenty men of the mining colony are having their conversation about whether or not they're going to accept the thousand dollar a head buyout offer from La Hood or if they're going to fight uh, and stay to stake their land and their their claim. And uh, the the yays. Uh, are really mustered uh, by these two characters. It was Hull and uh, what was the other guy? Spider. Spider. That was Spider. The not drunk yet Spider. Right. Uh, and so they have this conversation they're talking about. And and the way they, they sort of phrase their affinity for the place uh, is a long and just wonderfully heartfelt portrayal of kind of love of home. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I was I found myself really moved by that sequence in the film. And it was much long, longer, I think, than than um, certainly than was needed to get the point across, uh, you know, but um, it, it made it a much more sort of artful communication of of that sequence. And I really like the way he, he let that scene breathe. 
Yeah, and it's it's a it's a, a really touching scene where, in retrospect, you can see Preacher's hand in kind of working to help those people find a way to come together. Yeah, as he's standing, Preacher, uh, I should say, is standing behind them in the dark, and you don't you don't really know that until uh, a little bit into the sequence, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as he's asked to come forward and. And, you know, I, I suppose, I, I think maybe this sequence I should have known. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, he, the way he sort of plays the conversation is, um, you know, it, it's delicate. Uh, and, you know, dare I say, sort of biblical. Yeah, right. Uh, but, oh, oh. but it was really, it was, it was very well done. It was a very uh, dynamic sort of uh, sequence. Yeah. So there's Michael yeah. Moriarty. And uh, you know, just stepping aside from Michael Moriarty, but speaking specifically to this scene and the whole film, I think that Bruce Surtees' uh, cinematography um, in the whole film is just is is really really just stunningly gorgeous. I mean, they they shot this film up in the I believe the Sawtooth National uh, Park uh, or National Wilderness Area up in Idaho, and uh, the mountains in this film are truly just amazing to look at. Any of just the shots of them riding in the mountains and riding across the plains, I mean, really are just jaw-droppingly stunning. But then, the way that Eastwood chose to light the film, and along with Bruce Surtees, it was very... Um, I guess you could say kind of of the time where when you'd go inside one of the the buildings, there was very little light inside. Most of the light came from the windows. Speaking of that shot of La Hood by the window when uh, when spiders getting killed, um, just like this fire scene, there's so little light there. It's it's you're looking at kind of these faces that are kind of coming out in the firelight out of these black shadows. And it really is just uh, a beautiful way to light this film. And in contrast with kind of the bright, snowy landscape that we get sometime, particularly when Preacher is riding across it, almost like kind of this heavenly ride that he's taking, uh, it really kind of has a nice balance between the dark and the light in this film. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that, you know, the lighting and the production design in general, the mining community and the mine itself, both both La Hood's mine and the, you know, the communities, um, the buildings, the structures are, as you say, of the time. You know, it's it is a ragtag group that is set up home here yeah. um, and and making the inside as dark as they do. Uh, I think gives you a, a really special sense, and and it makes the connection that they talk about to that place. Uh, I, I think even more profound because on the same uh, you know on the same hand you could say how could you possibly have a connection to what you have there which is very little, mm-hmm. um, and and yet the what they're talking about is is you know what they have there is this connection to you know, to the mind, the, the speech that they, that he gives is, is all about, you know, if we were, you know, if we were farmers, we'd be planting seeds, you know, but we're miners. So we dig, and this is our home. This is, this is where we do what we do. 
uh, for our families. And, and uh, I think the, the production design and the way they, they build the physical connection with the place um, is, is quite special. I think another element that comes from that scene is the uh, a scene with very little dialogue. It's actually when Preacher first comes out to help Hull break this giant boulder that is in the creek, where he, you know Hull just kind of has this thing about him and the boulder. It's, it's either going to kill me or I'm going to kill it, and because he feels there's gold under it, and Preacher comes out and starts banging away at it with a sledgehammer, and that is the moment where he's able to start bringing everybody together and the town starts coming. And it's this really beautiful scene with no dialogue, just people as they kind of come down and start banging away at this rock. And, and you know, it, it comes after a confrontation with uh, uh, Chris Penn and uh, the ever fun to see on screen Richard Keel. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but there, it, it's this is this great kind of moment where people kind of come together and it, it kind of lends to that same sort of feel. Just like the conversation later that the group or that the group has, this is a moment where by action they are able to kind of come together and be as one again. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, again, you you mentioned the the sort of hand that he is that that he's just sort of holding through this community to, to bring them together. And we see uh, Carrie Snodgrass uh, played uh, the, the lady, uh, Hull's... Yeah, Sarah. Sarah. Sarah, Hull's significant other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has a, a moment where she's, you know, after, when they think the preacher has left, and it turns out the preacher is off doing his own thing, but when when they think the preacher has left, she has this this bit where she says, you know, you I can't believe... You know, it was the preacher that was holding these people together. You really think that they're going to stay together now that he's gone? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you see him uh, sort of come into his own confidence, you know, in in this sequence, and and be sort of duly surprised when when the preacher and he get to work together again. But it was it's a neat sort of sequence the way that that works. Yeah, yeah, right. it is. Yeah. And I, I do like uh, Carrie Snodgrass in this. I think that she does a good job with the character. It's it's an interesting role. Uh, you know, something that we haven't talked about is the direct comparison that this film has with Shane, the film that came out um, decades before. Mm-hmm. This film, it, it, the story is so in line with that in so many ways. You know, a, a town fighting a... A, a small group fighting kind of this this larger evil group. A stranger comes in, helps them defeat it, even going through to the end where, you know, Shane rides off and the boy runs after him. Shane, Shane, we love you, Shane. It's the exact same end. You know, it's, yeah. it's amazing how uh, repetitive this film is of the 1953 film. But um, I don't know, but there's there's elements to it that I think work so much differently. But one of them that that is also repeated is the fact that um, Carrie Snodgrass's character, Sarah, does kind of fall for this stranger that comes to town. Even though she's with Hull, there is this draw that she has to him. And it's an interesting character moment. And the way that that ends up playing out to the point where it's it's really kind of alluded to. Maybe they, uh, maybe they have a night together, which kind of creeps me out if he is a ghost. But... <laughs> But hey, 
Uh, but uh, you know, I don't know. There's something about the way that she plays it that just comes across yeah. as very straight. It's not uh, maudlin at all. It's just it's this even keel understanding of the way things are. Right. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen Shane. Me too. I was actually going to try to watch it before yeah. we recorded. I just didn't have a chance. Uh, that was um, who was the stranger? Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd was Shane, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming into town to to stop. Uh, who was Jack? Who was Jack? Jack was Palance? it Jack was Palance, Palance and Van was the Heflin? Bad guy? I see. Man, I can't it's been remember. Way it's, too it, long. Is, it has been a long time. I need he to was watch the that yeah. Thing. It was Jack. Jack Palance was the was essentially the the uh, Stockburn Stockburn character. character. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the parallels are well <laughs> uncanny, con- convincing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yet, you know, uh, an homage can can be a uh, satisfactory film in its own right. Yeah, and I think they change it up enough that I don't really have any problems with it. I find it very rewarding. All what is the, it? What is what is enough though, right? I mean, if the if the substance of the film is the same and the characters can be essentially mapped to one another, uh mm-hmm. what is it about this film that 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 makes it unique enough to get past the um the the uh, obvious comparisons for you? I guess it's well one Clint Eastwood and I think that there's something about the way that he plays a kind of this that stranger character that we were talking about earlier uh, that he that works so well for him. And I am always drawn to watching him do that, whether it's, you know, those more silly moments where he's fighting everybody with the hickory uh, handle or the more serious standoff that he has with Stockburn at the end. All of that, I think, um, really works well for me, even though the story itself is essentially kind of a mapped out version of Shane. But I think the way that they modify that story to create this ghost story and this this ghostly revenge story and this extra like I like I said I can't recall Shane very much. I can't remember if there is anything that um is hinted at that had gone on between Shane and these bad guys in the past. And for some reason I don't recall i don't think there was anything i think shane was just a good guy who happened to come into into town and ended up helping them before he kind of headed headed off right um so i think that they found a way to develop the story a little more and give it a little more of a mysterious spin that for me makes it stand out on its own yeah okay i buy that i mean i you know again it's been so long since i've seen it for me it's all about eastwood yeah, as oh, you yeah. said, I mean it's it's all about East. I just like watching the way he moves on horses, uh, and so my my needs are modest. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I you know the, the as I'm I'm you know as I was researching around here, and I'm I'm trying again back to this ghost thing. You know, I'm trying to to be sort of open minded and say that there are a number of ways to interpret this, and then I run across this quote where Clint Eastwood says. Preacher, quote, is an out-and-out ghost. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. He, if, I had, if I had known that he said that when he was doing all the press for this film, you know, I yeah. wouldn't have had to worry about it. I know, but, you know, that's what's so funny, that over the years, the thing that comes out of it is that, you know, if you don't know that, there's room to talk about this film. I think that's what's so interesting about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyhow, um, 
Okay, what else do we need to uh, well, well, talk well, about? Well, back to back to Richard Keel. Yes. I mean, come on, his Richard Keel, right? His Jaws. It's, <laughs> I'm sure he loves and, that. And he's in a western. I know, on a horse. And, and did you know he was entangled? He was. He was entangled. That's right. He's, yes. I was surprised to learn that he was still uh, doing anything. I was too. Uh, let alone something as recent as Tangled. Yeah, but it excites me. I, it, it thrills me that he's still around and just <laughs> just doing things. I mean, now it's almost more he's just doing these like more meta types of roles like Inspector Gadget where he plays famous big guy with silver teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, Tangled was his most recent film, He, but it looks like he's not doing... He did... Uh, uh, did some voice work in the James Bond video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's got a, good a, to a see him in there. sci-fi movie coming out supposedly yeah. later this year called Our Robot Overlords. <laughs> right. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what sort of release that one gets. Uh, music. Can we talk about the music? Well, before we do, I, I, no. I want to yes. also just Whatever bring you up want. lovely Sydney no, you Penny. Do your, you do your thing. I, I'm going to. I'm going to. All right. So the music. <laughs> what? Are you talking? Wow. <laughs> Sydney Penny, uh, actress, a star of uh, soap operas. And the Thornbirds. And can I just uh, plug myself here? <laughs> she is she's in my mom. Am- she is. She's my mom. <laughs> she's in Ambush at Dark Canyon, which is a movie that I worked on a couple oh, years that's, ago. That was the thing. You've been posting about that a little bit. That's right. That's right. It just came out on DVD. You can uh, pick up your copy at Walmart. It's uh, for sale at Walmart, and I believe it's streaming as well. So, uh, yeah, check it out, Ambush. Did you, now, did you meet Canyon. her? I did, in fact. And and how how is she? She's lovely. She's a wonderful, kind human being. Say that again. Ambush at... Ambush at Dark Canyon. Ambush at Dark Canyon. That's right. She's uh, she put a, I, put a link in our show notes. Yeah, we definitely, definitely. We I would like to clear up for the record. There is no way that she could be your mom because <laughs> she is your age. That's right. It would be a little awkward <laughs> if she were my mom. Uh, that's that fantastic. For a very strange birth. <laughs> She's. <laughs> Look at the beautiful pregnant baby you just had. <laughs> Uh, no, she was she was good in this movie as a Bible thumping teen. Well, and it's it is really kind of a creepy role because when she throws herself at the dead preacher, <laughs> because when you think about it, it's like these these were times when people were uh, marrying off their daughters when they were teenagers, when they were fourteen or fifteen, and she is fourteen. She's soon to be fifteen. Her mom got married when she was fifteen, and she falls for this preacher. And wants to uh, basically kind of go away with him because he's a preacher. She's very much into the Bible. And there's some really interesting connection there that um, I think is a different twist to the Shane uh, film, which is more of a father figure when Shane rides into town. Because her, you know, his father is gone, as I recall. And that's why the mom kind of falls for Shane. And then Shane rides off and the boy is wanting Shane to kind of stay and be his dad and all this. There's something really interesting the way that they change up this character and and make it this young girl who, in a way, his appearance and then disappearance 
is kind of a step that she needed in order to kind of grow up a little bit. And I think her goodbye to him at the end is a very touching goodbye that, uh, you know, it's there, there is some sense of maturity to it that I, I do really enjoy. And it's, uh, I, I find that ending very touching. I do too. I, I find it touching, particularly in the context of her anger toward him in the woods yeah. after she throws herself at him. Right. Uh, when when she tries so hard to to establish a romantic connection, uh, and it's one that I think is is risky in the film because it's it it tests some cultural norms that uh, I, I think even at the time were uh, uh, well risky. Yeah. Um, you know, she's pitching uh, exploring sexuality out of wedlock, and his response as ghost preacher is you know just something that's kind of reserved for marriage. <laughs> and uh and so you know it's it is it, to see her as aggressive as she is on film i think was an interesting um take on this character i i particularly liked it yeah uh and i thought it added a lot to to their relationship and his relationship with the town when you think about in hindsight that he was drawn to the town by her as an answer to her prayer if you look yeah. at it that way Right. And that, that's something that really stick, stuck in my mind when I kind of learned that he was a ghost is, okay, so he was drawn to her because she's the one who has the prayer and brings him there. But there had to be something in the air because I don't think he would have come necessarily if it wasn't for the coming of Stockburn. You know, because Stockburn is the reason that he comes. Stockburn is the the uh, the evil that brought him down that he needs to destroy and it's only because um, the you know he kind of comes and these these people won't leave that Lahood brings Stockburn. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could see this as a, as a good and evil showdown. You know, I mean, I I don't. I mean, there's there's probably some parallel in the Bible that I'm missing well, that would totally describe this. Probably. Uh, you know, it is interesting, though, because when you think about it, okay, so she ha says her prayer and brings Preacher to kind of avenge the town or at least fight for the town. And when LaHood learns that these townspeople are coming together, it's it's almost like the same sort of thing. I mean, he doesn't have a moment where yeah. he sits down and pray, prays, but essentially— It's it a battle of the saviors. Exactly. He yeah. has to go to his place where he's going to bring, you know, the 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 other version of the preacher, which is Stockburn. Right. And so it is. It's like these two warring factions bringing in their their demigods to fight. Yeah, and that's what that's what I that, that's sort of where I'm going. And so I don't know that I could uh, that I would be able to say, you know, why why did the preacher sh answer this particular prayer? Did he yeah. was there something? I I don't know that there's enough in the film to to no. to illustrate that, but it is a battle of good and evil. And that's that is at its at its sort of purest kind of rawest point. That's that's what this film is trying to get at. Absolutely. Um Okay, can we talk about the music now? Okay, sure. Have you watched it? The... Go... Okay, go ahead. No, there's one more actor. Tell... I just want to... Uh, those of the... Uh, the... <laughs> Lenny Niehaus' music is great. Do you know why? Do you know why I want to bring it up? Because did you, have you watched the trailer for this film, the original 85 trailer? Uh, you know, I haven't. The music is 
is I it's not the music obviously from the film, but it's it's a whole different like vibe to it. I I think the music in this is really is fantastic. I think it is a, a, a wonderfully interesting um, score. Uh it's but, haunting. It's yes, a haunting score. It is appropriately haunting, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's it. There is some spooky orchestral stuff going on in this in this here western. Um, do you? Is this one that you uh, celebrate? Do you have this one? I don't. I don't have a whole lot of uh, Lenny Niehaus's music. Um, I find it. Uh, it really works in context of the film, and then I find that uh, there's one or two themes that that I like to listen to after that, but I don't uh, seek out his scores too much, but I do think it works incredibly well in the context of this film. And by the way, the music that plays in the teaser trailer is according to IMDb's trivia page, Alan Hawkshaw's best endeavors, which was the longstanding theme music for Britain's channel four news. <laughs> Maybe oh that's goodness, why it's it terrible fit. <laughs> it's so terrible. Let's use that news theme. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, well, Lenny Niehaus did uh, did a number of other uh, Clint Eastwood films. He did Unforgiven. He did uh, well. He did. He's responsible for the love theme for the Bridges of Madison County. Uh, but also, uh, let's see. Wasn't where was? Um, he's been with him for. He's been with a long time. True Crime. Um, Escape from Alcatraz. Escape I mean, from Alcatraz. Alta- Al- Alta- <laughs> whatever that's called. Whatever. Yeah, he was the orchestrator on that. I mean, some he had been working with Peckinpah back in uh, right. those days with uh, um, uh, uh, the scores for those films. And I, I don't know how he kind of crossed over into working with uh, Eastwood, but he eventually found Eastwood and started working with him. It looks like on Escape from Alcatraz is, is the first film that he when was uh, what, what year on. was that Escape from Alcatraz? That was, was seventy nine. 79 and then uh you know he did some uh more work with him but yeah he came on looks like pale rider is his first full score with him or is it tightrope city tightrope yeah tightrope was uh not a clint eastwood directed film no but uh maybe that's uh uh but yeah so he's he's done a lot of stuff in this one i think it's it's just a really nice it's a solid spooky appropriate score yeah all right what other actor did you want to talk about uh, just another uh, Richard Dysart connection with The Thing. Oh. We have dear Charles Hallahan as one it's of uh, as Yeah, one of LaHood's gang here. You know, just yeah, it's hard to forget his head dropping off the table <laughs> and uh, crawling across the floor. I wondered if uh, Dysart and he talked about that and how Hallahan's chest essentially bit off Dysart's arms in that film. That's really funny. You know, I was te- I I I don't mean this as a a bit, but I right as you said, no one can forget. I was going to say oh, I totally forgot. <laughs> I totally forgot that that was that was the it was those two guys together that were doing the thing. Absolutely. It was awful. In all its gruesome, horrifying glory. Those teeth. Mhm. Glorious teeth. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Uh, what else you got? Are we done? You know, um, a little bit of trivia also tied to Richard Dysart that I think is fairly interesting. The train that he rides in on, 
uh, when he first makes his appearance toward the beginning of the film, that train is actually the uh, that whole train station was actually the same train station that was used again in Back to the Future 3. And oddly enough, Richard Dysart is in Back to the Future 3 as a salesman, and he's on the train. And that's where <laughs> Doc Brown hears him over talking, and that's what spurs Doc Brown to hop off and, and you know go back into action. But that it's, it's the exact same set. It's, I found it very funny that three years later, Dysart was back in the train again. That's actually really funny. I didn't catch that. that's great good stuff uh this was the highest grossing western at the box office during the 80s that's what i that's what i know this film um well it was lucky that this film actually even got made because i mean heaven's gate had come out a few years beforehand and really essentially almost killed Westerns flat out. I mean, people were just, I think, not looking to make any more Westerns. And I think is it Westerns or Chris Christopherson (laughs) that killed Heaven's Gate? Right. I mean, or kill. Yeah. I mean, really? What was it? Really? What was it? I think that I think if anything, that deserves further discussion for another time. (laughs) I just don't want to just leave that there. Right. right. All right. Go ahead. But it was it it did take a solid five years before Westerns really kicked in. In 85, there were four at least uh, Silverado, Rustler's Rhapsody, Pale Rider and Lust in the Dust. (laughs) <laughs> i haven't seen that one <laughs> i missed that one as well i luckily i i would say uh pale rider uh is the one that um made <laughs> the money not lust, lust in, in the, the dust, dust with Paul tab, tab hunter and divine yeah. yeah he rode the west the girls rode the rest together <laughs> they ravaged the land <laughs> oh my gosh divine was in yeah. hairspray and female trouble. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So luckily this wasn't the the western that redefined the westerns for the rest of the 80s. <laughs> oh my. So yeah, it so anyhow, you know this it did film, pretty well. It did pretty well for itself. Uh, I found that it cost just under 7 million, 6.9 million to make and it made about was that Let's including see. the prints and advertising? Or is that the whole it thing? It wasn't. I, I That was just the production budget. Okay. I couldn't find any other numbers. Right. Um, adjusted for $1985, that cost about $15 million to make. And then domestically, it made... I couldn't find anything internationally, but domestically, it made about $41.4 million. Adjusted is about uh, not quite $90 million. So, you know, for a modest budget film, it did pretty well for itself. Adjusted, it made $662,733.15 per finished minute. And 15 cents. Yeah. Uh, excellent. I I think that we should uh, rank it. I do too. Let's do that. If you head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, you will find our top films list. And I think there should be now, what, 100? This should be 118? Uh, well, it's changed a little bit, right? <laughs> right. Should we mention that? Well, we we readjusted. 
we readjusted our flick charts. And we, we had trouble because, you know, we do this, we do the film board uh, once a month. We do a current film with the Gang of Thugs. And we, uh, we realized that it was a little bit unfair to do these rankings where the thugs uh, would have to rank the current films against movies that some of them hadn't seen, which is, um, you know, when we get into some of our obscure catalog that we've done on the regular show. So we split them. And now we have a film board flick chart and we have a next real flick chart and that's right. what we're doing so now so how many does that leave us with this is going to be the 116th film 116 on, on the next real flick chart okay which so. is which is actually about right because we did have two episodes that were not as we have where this is episode 118 but we had a couple of episodes that were not film episodes didn't we? right back in the yeah. day back in the day all right all, all right. right you ready i'm i'm ready i'm ready all right for let's this. Let's do it. Pale Rider or Gattaca? Wow, that's an interesting one right out of the gate. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit. Uh, I'm in a little bit of context shock. I I like yeah, right. I like both of those films so much for such very different, different reasons. reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if I were going to sit down and just put on a film, uh, it would likely be Gattaca. I same here. Yeah. yeah. I don't Pale want to get Rider. all judgy. <laughs> Pale Rider or the Parallax View? I see. I would put on Pale Rider. I, me would too. Pale Rider or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, I, I'm a little torn, but it is Indiana Jones, so yeah. I will go Indiana Jones. Pale Rider or the Professional, aka Leon. Mm. I would yeah. do Pale Rider. Interestingly, yeah. both films about an older man with a younger woman. Exactly. Exactly. Drawn to him. Yeah, that's that's actually quite interesting. Who throws herself at him? Yeah. Um. Uh, okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Pale Rider. Um. And I. I don't know. I may regret it. You know, I'm now regretting going Pale Rider. I may go with Leon. Really? Okay, good. Let's go Leon. Let's go Leon. Seriously. I don't know. It's hard, but I Leon's a strong film. It just, and yeah, I there's think some that comedy rel- elements to it that drive me nuts, but I think on the, the relationship whole- between Leon and uh, the girl, um, what's her name? Matilda. Yeah, Matilda. Ugh. Ugh. Forget yeah. it. And right. Matilda is such a strong, strong, strong character. Yeah. Pale Rider or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I would go Temple of Doom. Yeah. Pure fun. Om Nam Shibai. Om Nam Shibai. <laughs> Pale Rider or Pete's new foreign classic favorite, Yee Yee, a one and a two. <laughs> Pale Rider, please. I will go Pale Rider. <laughs> It's, uh, I, if nothing other than the <laughs> length, <laughs> Pale Rider or Compulsion. Well, there's a oh. jump, back, jump back to our old, some old conversation. We haven't, we haven't ranked that one in a long time. Um, yeah. You know, I'm going to go Pale Rider, but it's but I do enjoy the Compulsion. That was a surprise to me. That really was. It was. Orson Welles is fantastic. That monologue that. is. Yeah. Mm. All right, 84 out of 116. Hey, it broke 100. Yep, it certainly did. 
Awesome. Excellent, excellent. excellent. Uh, so this was the end of our Richard Dysart uh, series of films. Uh, we do have one other uh, VSE. Mm. Very special episode coming up, which we are just wrapping up, I promise. Uh, and that'll come out very shortly. We did. Uh, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to introduce it? We uh, we tracked down Richard Dysart and had a wonderful and fun-filled conversation with him. And uh, yeah, we're excited to present it as a bonus episode. A bonus episode. So that'll be coming in the next week. And so that'll jump in the feed. Uh, look for that shortly, and we'll have it up on the blog as well. Great conversation with an all-around awesome man. Absolutely. Uh, and so we're very much looking forward to that. But where do we go from here to our next film, Andy? Well, this has been pretty exciting. As you know, we did our uh, first listener's choice, and uh, Steam Robot, a.k.a. Stephen Smart, won. And he has picked the... Uh, wonderfully romantic film in the mood for love i say that not having actually seen the film <laughs> yeah right. but in the mood for love is what we're going to be uh talking about next week and uh i'm quite excited this is one of those great uh, films that everybody always is saying it's how, how good it is and i still have it on my list of shame so uh, I'm finally excited to check it off the list. Now I think I have this one, and it, it was it wasn't this part of sort of a spiritual trilogy. I don't know if it's a spiritual. In the mood trilogy. for love, days of being wild, in 2046. Uh, I okay. Didn't know that. I knew that he basically shot this and 2046 back to back, same sets and all that sort of stuff. But I didn't realize that there was a third one in the mix. So Well, and, and may, uh, maybe I'm crazy and, and didn't do that. But I, I could have sworn that there was some connection. And I we're going to uh, we actually are going to be talking to uh, the goodly, uh, kindly Mr. Smart. Uh, he's going to give us a little introduction about why he thinks we should be do talking about this film and why it's an important film to be included in our list. And so we will take on that very question. Because he, he, this was one when he wrote in he said specifically, I think, some time ago that we should absolutely look at these films. Right. Uh, and so we'll see just how... Maybe we have three movies to watch before next week is all I'm saying. So get ready. <laughs> get uh -oh. ready for that. Good times. Good talk, Andrew. Absolutely. Hey, uh, you know, much love to your family. And much love to yours. It's, it, it probably is going to be a direct-to-digital after it kind of goes through this limit, limited release base, based on... Uh, Are you okay? Did you swallow something living? I think I just... The succubus you did. Just the succubus just... <laughs> Whatever's going on on your end is horrible. Wow. Are you okay? So that's what it feels like. <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> Not at all what I was hoping. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.